ignition running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Remember to go to WSBRadio.com, register for a chance to win $500 or more in free gas. Then you got to listen at 8, 10, 4, and 5 to find out uh, if you're the winner. We've got local news. I want to get into this national story about the, um, the New York Times 1619 project. But before we do, there's national news that impacts Georgia. Uh, the National Republican Congressional Committee is out with its list of young guns. The Young Guns program was started by Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy back in the day, uh, and there are four Georgia candidates on the list. Uh, in the 6th Congressional District, uh, Karen Handel is on the list, and in the 7th Congressional District, you've got Renee Unterman, Lynn Homrich, and Ben Bullock are on the list. Um, I don't know the criteria. Uh, frankly, I've never been a big fan of the Young Guns list. Uh, full disclosure, Karen Handel is a friend. I am supporting Karen. I like Karen. She and Steve Handel, her husband, have been friends of mine. But I got to say, uh, leaving Brandon Beach off that list, I think, is bad form by the NRCC. He's a credible candidate with solid fundraising numbers. I suspect uh, they want a, a female versus female race in the six, and they're trying to use their clout to shape it. Um, I'm a firm believer in having good primaries. Uh, when you look at the race over in the 7th Congressional District, for example, they've got Lynn Homrich, Renee Unterman, and Ben Bullock. I, I don't know anything about Homrich and Bullock. I, I'm not a fan of Unterman, but got to give her the benefit of the doubt, given uh, her champion of championship of the fetal heartbeat bill. But Rich McCormick over there is an emergency room doctor. He actually lives in the district, unlike the other people on this list. He didn't have to move into the district. A solid, credible candidate. Yet again, you've got the national Republican guys trying to shape primaries, and I think that's wrong. Uh, Brandon Beach, for example, uh, again, I, I'm supporting Karen, but Brandon Beach is a state senator from the Alpharetta area in the heart of that district who has really credible fundraising numbers, a really credible background, a really credible base of support, and it's nuts that they would not put him on this list. Now, there are some nuts they didn't put on the list, but Beach isn't one of them. Uh, it, same thing over in the 7th Congressional District with Rich McCormick, uh, the doctor who is running over there, super credible candidate, uh, backed by a lot of conservatives are around the country now. Uh, and, it, you know, I understand that there's a lot of social conservative support for Renee Unterman in that district because of her helping pass the fetal heartbeat bill. I don't know Ben Bullock. I, I looked at Lynn Homrich's campaign, and it looks like a group of the usual suspects, consultants, and Washington will wind up bleeding her dry. Um, but McCormick and, and Beach should have been on that list. And watching the national guys try to shape these primaries to try to get it. They think there's going to be a female Democrat in the seventh. There is a female Democrat in the sixth. And what they really want is a, a woman versus woman primary in both of those to try to neutralize the war on women, st women stuff that may be played. And it's unfortunate 
to see them try to shape primaries like that. Um, you should not let me, frankly, or the NRCC shape who you want to support in those races. There are some good candidates who should have been on the list, uh, even if you just look at fundraising numbers. Now, we got to get into the New York Times project, the 1619 project. I, I actually became a national trend on Twitter overnight and into the, the morning hours. I'll explain. Now, I need to get into the... Uh, 1619 project by the New York Times. I, I became the overnight Twitter sensation uh, last night into this morning over my criticisms of this project. Uh, there are a whole lot of people deeply defensive about the New York Times project. It has made a lot of buzz. Ted Cruz and others are going after them as well for what they're doing. And you need to understand what the New York Times is doing. They, they want to recast American history and make it all about not race per se, but slavery. Uh, in fact, let me read you the opening two paragraphs from the New York Times 1619 uh, project, uh, which is their big magazine project they unveiled this weekend, which a much buzz and sensation. I actually did read it. A lot of people are blowing it up. They haven't read it. I have read it. Let me read you the first two paragraphs of it. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this faithful moment, fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. Truthfully. Keyword there. Now here's the next one. The 1619 Project aims to reframe the country's history. Understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Now, these two paragraphs are diametrically opposed to each other. You want to tell the story truthfully, and then you say you want to reframe it to put black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Now, Notice their careful wording here. If anyone were to point out that um, enslaved Americans in the 17th and 18th and 19th century were not the movers and shakers and shapers of American society, largely because they were enslaved, well, the New York Times wants you to, to be cast in some way as a white nationalist or racist or something for saying that. In other words, they, they've bought into this intersectional idea that the least privileged among us have the most power, should have the most power in society. And so the contributions of, of George Washington and others must be diminished in order to raise the contributions of others. But there are fatal flaws in this from the get-go of the project. For example, one of the initial, one of the initial essays in this is that uh, capitalism is deeply flawed because American capitalism comes from, well, let me read this to you, those searching for reasons the American economy is uniquely severely and unbridled Uniquely severe and unbridled have found answers in many places, religion, culture, culture, politics. But recently, historians have pointed persuasively, which historians, they don't tell us, to the natty fields of Georgia and Alabama, to the cotton houses and slave auction blocks as the birthplace of America's low-road approach to capitalism. 
Now, what this author does in this essay is he elevates European socialism as what capitalism is really supposed to be. And American capitalism is bad. And then he rewrites American history. I mean, willfully rewrites American history. For example, the New York Times Project picks 1619 because that's when slaves first arrived in the North American continent. But English settlers had already arrived. The first House of Burgess meeting in Nor the North American continent took place in Jamestown, Virginia, July 30th, 1619, well before slaves arrived. A democracy and a governance structure had already been set up. Likewise, the pilgrims arrived in Plymouth the next year in 1620. There were, they had limited knowledge of what was happening in Jamestown. They had no slaves. They had to go through and build things up themselves. And in so doing, they actually hit upon a communal structure, a socialist structure, if you will, like what they had in, in, um, in Europe. And then by 1623, still while there were no slaves present in New England, they had to abandon those schemes and develop private property and free market interest rights. The, the very American capitalist system was formed not with the slaves in Georgia and Alabama, as the author pre pretends, but actually from the pilgrims in New England who came in and set up a collectivist society in the Pil Plymouth Plantation, and they nearly starved to death. And so what they had to do is divide the tracts of land between the families and give each family a share of land and those people were that family was responsible for growing their own crops to feed their own family and then could sell in the free market through a, an arms league transaction their excess food to those who did not have it that's actually the story of how american capitalism came to be the puritan work ethic there's a reason we call it that but the new york times attempts to rewrite all of this and say american capitalism was founded in the slave fields of the south which is not true and by the way you you don't have to believe me about this. This isn't my opinion. William Bradford actually wrote the definitive story of on Plymouth Plantation, uh, chronicling what actually had happened in, in Plymouth Plantation. In the late 1600s, he began chronicling all this stuff. You can read his book for yourself where he talks about they had to discover and, and embrace private property rights and a free market system in order to survive well before there were slaves there. You would never know that from the New York Times. Again, they want to reframe history. Journalists don't reframe, they report. This is a partisan political effort, and they admit to it in a closed-door meeting, and I've got the transcript from that closed-door meeting where they admit this. For many of us, our blinds, whatever you use for your windows, they're just an afterthought. Window treatments, they call them. But with brand new made-to-order custom window coverings from Blinds.com, you can really transform the look and feel of your entire house. When they're right, everything in your home looks better. When they're wrong, your house can look cheap. And when you need new blinds, there's one place to go, Blinds.com. Let me tell you about my experience with Blinds.com. I wasn't even using them as a podcast endorser. I just used them because we've got some Charleston-style uh, faux wood shutters in our house. And in our guest bedroom, they were warping and buckling for some reason. Needed to get them replaced. I didn't know where the people who built the house had got them from. I went to blinds.com. I found some that were very, very similar. Was able to measure, match them up. They sent me a sample, made sure they looked. They did it all for free. Didn't have to worry about screwing it up. They would take care of it. Sure enough, got them right. They look good. I got better blinds. And they're not warping and buckling like the ones whoever built this house did. With 15 million windows covered and over 30,000 five-star customer reviews, and I'm one of those reviews, 
use. Blinds.com is America's number one online retailer for affordable, quality, custom window coverings. Blinds.com makes the whole experience fast and easy. Every order gets free samples, free shipping, and free online design consultation. Send them a picture of your house. They send back custom recommendations from a professional for what works with your color scheme, furniture, specific rooms. They'll even send you free samples to make sure everything looks as good in person as it does online. For a limited time, my listeners get $20 off at Blinds.com when you use promo code ERIC. That's Blinds.com, promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, for $20 off. You get faux wood blinds, cellular shades, roller shades, a whole lot more. Blinds.com, the promo code is ERIC. Rules and restrictions apply. So this morning, Bloomberg News reported that the government, well, progressive groups are petitioning the government to tax cows. I'm not making that up. They want red meat taxed uh, to get you to stop eating red meat. They want you to pay a hefty tax to drive up its cost so that you have to stop eating it regularly because of global warming. This afternoon, there's a new report out. Do you know Clark Howard would even be appalled by this? According to a federal program, the Energy Star program, do you know what they say your temperature should be set at when you sleep? 85, uh, 82 degrees, 82 degrees. When you're a worker away, 85 degrees. When you're asleep, 82 degrees. The coldest you should ever set your temperature, Clark Howard would agree with this one, 78 degrees, according to the... What government bureaucrat comes up with this? This is insane. 82 degrees when you sleep? No, 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 no. It's got to be 70 degrees or less when you sleep. The the colder, the better when you go to sleep. Uh, no normal human being can sleep within temperatures above 70 degrees. You don't believe me? Ask Clark Howard. He sleeps like above 75 degrees. Is he normal? I don't think so. No, normal people, 70 or less. This is just crazy. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. If you were headed up 985, uh, the Flowery Branch to Gainesville area, very strong storm incoming over that area. Also up 400 north of Roswell into Alpharetta, you've got a lot of heavy rain stretches all the way up to Dahlonega. Up uh, 575, you've got rain from the split at 75. All the way up to ball ground, you have rain. Very heavy stuff also just to the west of Ackworth. And uh, further out in the Floyd County area, that's Rome. You've got a severe thunderstorm up that area as well. I was stunned the other day to meet a guy who commutes between Rome and downtown Atlanta. That is a heck of a drive. Now, if you're just tuning in, I've been talking about the uh, 1619 Project by the New York Times, where they attempt to in their words, reframe American history. And the way they reframe American history is to twist historic fact to fit into their conclusions, which is unfortunate. It's not reporting. It's it's activism. It's not journalism. Let me again read you uh, part of the passage uh, that the New York Times writes in Why American Capitalism is Bad. The 1619 Project, I guess I should explain, is a series of essays And part of the problem is they're not necessarily from historians, they're from grievance mongers. 
people who get paid to keep racial animosity alive at a time they think the president of the United States divides people along racial lines and plays up racial animosity. Here comes the New York Times doing the same thing. This is where they think capitalism comes from. Those searching for reasons the American economy is uniquely severe and unbridled have found answers in many places, religion, politics, culture, but recently historians appointed persuasively to the natty fields of Georgia and Alabama to the cotton houses and slave auction blocks as the birthplace of America's low road approach to capitalism. Well, when you read it, he gets basic facts wrong and twists other facts to to distort them all out of proportion. And for example, as I mentioned before the last break, It completely ignores that American capitalism is particularly derived, according to all mainstream historians, from Plymouth Plantation, where when they came over in 1620, they worked worked the land as a communal effort and nearly starved to death. So by 1621 and 1623, they had divided up the property as individual plots of land owned by families that could be passed generationally, and the families were responsible for tending to their particular piece of land to grow crops to feed their family and they could sell the rest in arm's length transactions it is from there where we derive the phrase the puritan work ethic and the puritan work ethic is where american capitalism gets its foundations to to say that american capitalism and its severity comes from the quote-unquote natty fields of georgia and alabama is to suggest as i've posited with the new york times that the neo-confederates were right that the South, it looks like they, they lost the battle but won the war, that, that they have invaded and infested American society and American thought, and they were really the winners of the Civil War, which is not true. What the New York Times avoids doing, and this is what is so mind-blowing with this entire effort by the New York Times and by the left wanting reparations, 500,000 Union soldiers died to free the slaves. You want propitiation for the sins of this country? There is your propitiation. Christ Jesus died on the cross to forgive you your sins against God. 500,000 Union soldiers died on the battlefield to get America past its original sin, shedding their blood. The correct number, actually, 375,000 died on the battlefield. An additional 220-some-odd thousand were wounded and died of illness that they contracted during the war. You'd never know that from reading the New York Times. And then there's this twisting of facts as well that, you know, they've got to delegitimize the entire American experience, the entire American experiment with the 1619 Project. Everything comes from slavery. One of the institutions that comes from slavery is the Senate. Pay no attention to Roman history. No, no, no. And, And there's this paragraph. The debt limit standoff was a case study of a fundamental change within the Republican Party after Obama took office in 2009. Republicans would either win total victory or they would wreck the system itself. The Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, used a variety of procedural tactics to effectively nullify the president's ability to nominate federal judges and fill vacancies in the executive branch. In the minority, he used the filibuster to an unprecedented degree. In the majority, after Republicans won the Senate in the 2010 midterm elections, he led an extraordinary blockade of the Supreme Court, stopping the Senate from even considering the president's nominee from the bench. There is a lot wrong in that paragraph, but there are two key things that are factually not true, and those two key things define this entire essay on the illegitimacy of the Senate. Okay, so here are the the two major 
points that are factually wrong with this essay. Again, the entire essay designed around how radical Republican op- opportunism and opposition is all based on slavery. The Republicans didn't take the Senate back in 2010. I mean, that, that's one of the key framing points for this essay is that the Republicans took back the Senate in 2010 and then began systematically obstructing the president. But no, they, they didn't. What happened is that the Republicans didn't take back the Senate until 2014. And after 2010, the Democrats, led by Harry Reid, scrapped the filibuster for judicial nominees and then proceeded to begin stacking the federal bench with Democrat-appointed judges with no filibuster to stop them. It was not until 2014 that the Republicans took back the Senate, and then with the death of Antonin Scalia in 2016, they ground the Senate to a halt on, on uh, the Supreme Court nominations and refused to even give a consideration to Merrick Garland as payback for scuttling the filibuster. You would never know that from this. Republicans are bad. Republicans all bad. And history has to be twisted, contorted, or left out in order to proceed. Now, why? Why are they doing this? Well, there was an off-the-record meeting with Dean Baquette, who is the editor of the New York Times and writers at the New York Times, who were outraged that the Times might dare treat Donald Trump fairly. Consider that. They were outraged that the president might be treated fairly. So Baquette had to have a have a meeting with them. The transcript, the, the, it was recorded. The meeting wasn't supposed to be recorded. Someone recorded it and leaked it to Slate Magazine, a left-wing magazine. Let me read you from Dean Baquette. These are his words, not mine, unedited in their context and entirety. The day Bob Mueller walked off that witness stand, two things happened. Our readers who want Donald Trump to go away suddenly thought, holy blankety-blank, Bob Mueller is not going to do it. And Donald Trump got a little emboldened politically, I think, because, you know, for obvious reasons. And I think that the story changed. A lot of the stuff we're talking about started to emerge like six or seven weeks ago. We're a little bit flat-footed. I mean, that's what happens when a story looks a certain way for two years, right? I think that we've got to change. I mean, the vision for coverage for the next two years is what I talked about earlier. How do we cover a guy who makes these kinds of remarks? How do we cover the world's reaction to him? How do we do that while continuing to cover his policies? How do we cover America that's becoming so divided by Donald Trump? How do we grapple with all the stuff you all are talking about? How do we write about race in a thoughtful way, something we haven't done in a large way in a long time? That, to me, is the vision for coverage. You all are going to have to help us shape that vision, but I think that's what we're going to have to do for the rest of the next two years. You got that? You got that? That, That's Dean Baquette. That's the editor of the New York Times, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, saying that everybody thought that Bob Mueller was going to take out Donald Trump, and Bob Mueller didn't take out Donald Trump. So now the Times wants to spend the next two years focusing on race and racial tension and rewriting American history to drive people to take out Donald Trump. They want to spend the next two years turning this into a race war where Donald Trump is the bad guy. And by the way, I do think we have problems. I I do think that we all need to learn more about slavery in this country and the impact it has had on our society. And I do think that white supremacists have been emboldened in the last two years. And I do think that the president's rhetoric in part has played a role, not necessarily intentionally. I don't think he means it intentionally. But when you look at how the media constantly miscasts what the president says, for example, uh, the rapists and criminals coming from Mexico, the media cast that as the president saying all Mexicans were rapists and criminals. He was specifically talking about gang members 
members. When the president referred to MS-13 as animals, the media cast that as him talking about all Hispanic people as animals when he was talking about gang members. Remember when he said there were very good, fine people in Charlottesville? He wasn't talking about the white supremacists. He condemned them. He said there were very fine people out there who didn't want to see the statues torn down and very fine people on the other side. And then there were all the other people. But the media cast him as calling the white supremacists very fine people. So the president doesn't intend his words to stir people to racial hostility, but the media twists them, too, just as they're twisting American history. By the way, I didn't actually know that. I I really thought the president referred to the white supremacists as as very fine people in Charlottesville. And I bet most of you did, too. And, And it was actually Jake Tapper on CNN who pointed out that that's not true. The president was referring to citizens who didn't want the confederate statues torn down who happened to be out there and the proud boy people showed up and and started the whole protest rally and the president referred to them as very bad people i hadn't i i really did believe the media hype lesson learned for me really amazing how the media twists things and how even myself i can fall for this stuff and my job is to weed through the fake news and well a lot of people buying fake news and the New York Times pushing it out. Stacey Abrams back in the news. I've got some audio from her ABC News interview. You're going to want to listen to some important stuff, she said there. We'll get to that after the top of the hour news. It is Eric Erickson here at Atlanta's Evening News. If you want to be a part of the program, 404-872-0750 or 1-800-WSB-TALK is the number. Right now, you need to know if you're headed up 400 north of Sandy Springs, you have some serious rain up 400, some hail included. I can see in the Johns Creek area, you're about to get smacked as well. Uh, it's lightening out up 575, but still rain between Holly Springs and Canton and up 985 towards Gainesville. Lots and lots of rain up there, folks. We'll keep you posted on the weather here on WSB and all the headlines. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Stacey Abrams is back in the news. Uh, yes, it is relevant. It is important. I, 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 I've gotten people reaching out to me say, why do you keep talking about this? Well, you got to remember, um, in 2014, 2016, her last voting uh, rights and voter registration group uh, registered a bunch of people and created massive amounts of paperwork errors. Those people continue to be list- listed as pending voters. We don't even know if some of these people are real. And uh, the result is that they then weaponized that issue of their own mistakes against Brian Kemp in 2018. So I'm warning people that as this issue progresses and the voting rights group continues, if they do voter registration, you may have another situation where there are more screw ups and they get covered as if it's other people causing the mess up and not Abrams. But I got to say, overall, I am genuinely fascinated and I'm actually impressed with her ability to garner the amount and and positive media that she's getting as a loser. And I think a lot of it does have to do with white liberals feeling guilty about 2018. They poured in the, in the media, they poured so much effort and attention into uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke against Ted Cruz and how viable he was. And it turns out that both Andrew Gillum in Florida and Stacey Abrams in Georgia, both of whom were black, were able to get far closer to their Republican counterparts than Beto O'Rourke was to his. As a result, there is a level of guilt. And in that level of guilt, well, we get this fawning coverage. Here's Martha Raddatz on ABC News. 
I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in the state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear. This is not a speech of concession. That was Georgia's Stacey Abrams last November at the end of her bid to become the first African-American female governor in the U.S., mincing no words that she believed voter suppression gave the election to her opponent. Now, after months of speculation about her political future and whether she would join the crowded 2020 presidential field, Abrams this week launched her new initiative, Fair Fight 2020, focused on taking on what she calls voter suppression in the upcoming election. ABC's Lindsay Davis traveled to Atlanta to discuss Abrams' efforts. It, it is fascinating to me uh, how the media is fawning over this. And, and by the way, you know, if it, was a, if it was a legit effort at voter registration and to stamp out voter irregularities, it'd be one thing. But everybody knows what's going on here. Uh, this is a this is a partisan outside group that will be funded by progressives and will help progressives. It will only have the veneer of of nonpartisanship. We got to play more uh, Stacey Abrams audio uh, on the state of voting. This this has been getting buzz over the weekend. What she said to Martha Raddatz, and it's worth considering uh, her take on this. Listen to this. Do you believe that elections are essentially rigged? What I mean by rigged is this. We have a right to vote in the United States that is afforded to eligible American citizens. But we have seen over the last 20 years a constriction on who has the right to use that right. No, wait, 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 wait. We, we need to pause here. Where did the restriction come from? In Georgia, the restriction came from Democrats. And before you do the uh, they're all Republicans now routine, as some people are wont to do, actually many of these Democrats are still in the state legislature as Democrats. Now, why did they do it? Well, let's play a little more of this audio before we get to that. We have seen it through voter ID laws. You can't get on the rolls. And if you get on the rolls, you can't stay. Now, why? Why? See, notice how the, the media doesn't want to call her out on that. Why? Uh, voter ID and why, if you get on the rolls, you can't stay on the rolls. Why? There was this thing that happened. It was called the 2000 presidential election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And in that election in Florida, in particular, George W. Bush won by 537 votes. He won the presidency by 537 votes. Now, curiously enough, the USA Today went back and they counted the ballots and they used the standard that George W. Bush wanted used in court and they used the standard that Al Gore wanted used in court. And under the standard that Al Gore wanted used uh, to, to count the ballots, there was a state standard. Al Gore wanted a different standard and George W. Bush wanted a different standard. And the court said, no, you got to use the state standard. Whether you like it or not, you can't change the rules uh, once the election has happened. You got to wait for the next election. Under the standard that Al Gore wanted, George W. Bush would have won with over 5,000 votes, not 537. Under the standard George W. Bush was fighting for, he would have won by less than 100 votes. Think about that. Uh, the standard George W. Bush wanted, had the court given him what he wanted, he would have won with less than 100 votes. But no matter how you counted the votes, George W. Bush would have won Florida. 
But one of the problems that they dealt with in Florida is that there were a ton of people who should not have been eligible to vote because they were convicted felons or they died or they had moved or they were declared incompetent. And so a bipartisan group led by Democrats in the United States Senate, remember Jim Jeffords switched, handed the Senate to the Democrats, and a bipartisan group led by Democrats in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer voted for it. They decided to support legislation called the Help America Vote Act. And one of the requirements under the Help America Vote Act was that the states had to clean up their voter rolls to prevent another Florida situation where people were showing up who weren't eligible to vote and there was mass confusion. And so states around the country began passing laws to clean up their voter rolls and required state legislators, state secretaries of state to regularly clean up their voter rolls. That's a fact. I'm not making that up. That's a fact. Georgia had actually passed this law in the late 90s. That's a fact. It was a Democratic legislature in Georgia. I'm I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't opinion. This is fact. This is what happened. And so for Abrams to say this is somehow some sort of sinister act, that it was designed for voter suppression, that's not true at all. It was designed to clean up a very messy voting process where each state controls its own process, which is required under the Constitution. But the standards were lacking in such uniformity that the states were having a real hard time and elections were being undermined by various challenges. That's why Congress got involved. And then that's why the states had to clean up voter rolls. For her to suggest otherwise is deeply disingenuous. Now, I realize she wasn't elected at the time. She and I are roughly the same age. We were in college at the time. But those are the facts. I mean, you open any history book and and you will see that's the fact. It wasn't some grand conspiracy to deny black people the right to vote, as she and, and progressives today would suggest. It was because the idiots in Florida didn't know how to use a butterfly ballot and people who shouldn't have been allowed to vote showed up and decided they wanted to vote and they couldn't. And we had to clean up the rules. That's what happened. That is history. There's no reframing of history. Fact is fact. Truth is truth. And that's the truth. Wouldn't it be nice if search engines and social media sites were unbiased platforms that didn't choose a side politically? Keep dreaming. In 2016, there were tech elite out there bragging about donating millions of dollars to Hillary. You got big tech companies that push political agendas that restrict free speech rights of conservatives. At the very same time, they're the corporations we're trusting to handle our personal data online. I don't really know that you want to give them your web history, your email metadata, or your video searches. That's why you may want to consider ExpressVPN every time you go online. Big tech companies can match your internet activity to your identity or location using your public IP address, even if you're not worried about your privacy, just the serving of ads to you. Well, when you use ExpressVPN, the tech companies can't see your IP address, so your identity is masked. It's made anonymous by secure VPN servers. Plus, ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting 100% of your data to keep you safe from hackers and internet bad guys. Well, it's not complicated, even though you may think it is. ExpressVPN software takes just a minute to set up on your computer or phone. You tap one button and you're protected. So, if you believe internet data belongs to you and not to big internet companies, use ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Eric. That's expressvpn.com slash Eric for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Eric to learn more. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800-WSB-TALK. Bob in Powder Springs. Welcome to the program. How are you? 
Hey, thanks for taking my call, Eric. Sure. I was I was just curious as to the reason why the mainstream media and some of your coworkers at WSB and the Atlanta Journal Constitution, Greg and Tamara, and the rest of them, how come they don't call out uh, the racist rabble rouser Stacey Abrams for her for her lies? Listen, I, I just I, don't I, understand why they don't do it. I've sent them several emails asking them why, and I can't get an answer. Maybe maybe you can illuminate it for me. Bob, I, I actually think Greg Bluestein is one of the only journalists in North America who has done just outstanding work in debunking some of the mythology out there developed by the Democrats on voter suppression. Uh, he was one of the very few journalists nationwide who was writing when the Democrats were talking about the pending voter file. Uh, how much of it they had gotten wrong when they were talking about uh, people thrown off the rolls. It was Bluestein who was doing the pushback, and, and really only Bluestein at the AJC who was doing that. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't drop names and accuse people of not doing stuff when, in fact, some of them have done very good work out there, Bluestein uh, among them. Um, but at the same time, nationally, you got a bunch of reporters who are very sympathetic to people like Stacey Abrams. Uh, they feel guilty they didn't back her in 2018, and they want to make it up to her. And they also institutionally, philosophically believe that the Republicans suppress the vote. They do not believe in systemic voter fraud. They do not believe, I mean, when Karen Handel was Secretary of State, she had a copious documentation of people who voted who shouldn't have voted. They don't believe any of it. Um, but the idea that there's voter suppression, they absolutely believe that sort of stuff. Um, it is a, a by-faith issue for them. It is a philosophical, religious issue of the secular cult to believe these sorts of things, and there's no pushback. you got to give credit where it's due to, to journalists like Bluestein and Tamara Holder who, who have pushback. It is 40 after the hour. I am Merrick Erickson. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. This is Judah and the Lion. Shut up, Charlie. My my producer apparently has a is anti Judah and the Lion. Uh it, terrible. Um just absolutely he he has no sense of good music. I'm I'm just saying. Um now you need to know that uh, Planned Parenthood is pulling out of the federal family planning program because the Trump administration has imposed a rule prohibiting participants from referring patients for abortions if they want federal family planning money. And Planned Parenthood, uh, is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the most liberal judicial circuit in the country, has upheld the rule. And then so Planned Parenthood is withdrawing altogether from the program, saying they're not going to be able to provide women all, all sorts of medical services now well, he, that's nonsense they they you know for a long time Planned Parenthood has said they perform mammograms and whatnot and multiple private investigations of Planned Parenthood have shown they don't actually do that and even most Planned Parenthood facilities will admit they don't do that uh, they're all about abortion and well now they can't use federal money for abortions uh, the money is fungible they were subsidizing their abortion costs Big, big news out of the Trump administration on that. A big win in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, of all things. Back to the phones we go. Carrie and Marietta, welcome. How are you? Hi, good, thanks. Eric. Um, I was wondering if you really think that Karen Handel has an opportunity or a chance to win. Um, you know, she had a lot of negative press after her short term that she served. And um, I know you said earlier that she was on the Republican up and coming list, but 
I just feel like she probably there's got to be there might be somebody better out there than her. Well, I like her, but I feel like there might be somebody better. You know, uh, this is something that she's definitely got to overcome uh, in the race, and I think that she can overcome it. I, I think if you asked her and you asked a lot of the Republicans nationally. Uh, why she lost in 2018, that a lot of it would be just the dynamics, nothing she herself did. Uh, as far as winning the primary, she's got the highest name ID, and that's good and bad typically, but more often than not, the person with the highest name ID wins, and I know there's polling out there that shows that she still consider has a positive name ID rating among Republicans in that district, so it, it's definitely hers to lose for the primary. As far as the general election, uh, ground game really mattered in 2018, and the Republicans didn't put in ground game. They, they did not. Uh, in fact, I talked to Handel uh, right before the election. There were some warning signs out there in the pollings that things weren't going as well. Her internal polling had her looking okay. But uh, we were both concerned that the promised ground game by the national Republican groups had not come to fruition and so she was out busting her tail trying to get out every vote, and it was not to be in the Democratic wave we saw. But again, she has the she's got to bear the burden here. the The burden of proof is on her, not with the others, uh, having lost the last time. That she's got to make the case that she's the most viable candidate. I think she'll be able to do that, but it is on her to do. And and I do understand people looking saying you lost. Why run again? Well, she's going to make that case. Uh, and I'm happy to support her in her doing that.